Welcome to the Calvary Assembly Podcast with weekly messages from Calvary Assembly of God Church in Lexington, Nebraska. You can find out more online at lexag.org and on Facebook at Calvary Assembly Lex. Thanks for listening. This morning we do have a former, not former Honor Brown, he is Honor Brown, former chaplain for that gride, but he's here as a missionary to the Ukraine. And so give it up for Curtis Hubble. Oh, no, 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 no. Please, please be seated. Um, Wonderful to be back in the great state of Nebraska. I bring you greetings from a foreign land, Colorado. <laughs> Believe it or not, I still have a lot of stuff in Colorado. And so for some insane reason, one of the things that I put on our list of what we had to do before we leave uh, the country again is we had to make some progress on uh, that, and we did, but... Uh, uh, there's nothing like going back to somewhere you, that you used to be uh, to to bring into focus where you are now. And uh, there's some, you know, there's some sentimental attachments uh, that are just uh, normal. Uh, I was born and raised in uh, southern Colorado, and uh, honestly, I thought that's where... I would, uh, I would, I would be. They'd throw dirt on me there, uh, but now I know that a hundred and some years ago, when my family migrated uh, from the east out to the west, they got lost because they should have come to Nebraska. I love, I love, uh, I love being a Nebraskan. Uh, I feel that with the Marriage of my daughter to a Holbrook, which is a thoroughly Nebraskan name, that we can no longer be called outsiders. So this is my home church. I am from Lexington, Nebraska, and it's good to be home. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't mind. Oh, yes, yeah. But a, a lot of that has to do with this wonderful church. Uh, you you welcomed us with open arms, and uh, it was a, it was an incredible journey that uh, brought us here. And I'm really glad uh, to uh, have this as my home church, and to have made so so many wonderful friends and uh, people that are family to me now. Um, it wasn't that long ago that uh, we came back here from a much uh, more foreign land, and that was uh, the nation of Ukraine. God called us to go there a few years ago, and we have been making trips there for quite some time now. And uh, it wasn't that long ago when this was nothing more than just a notion in my head, just an idea, just a seed that God started to plant, and then it started to germinate and sprout and grow. And it, I've just I've enjoyed so much watching God 
bring about in my life what he called me to do. Now, there's something that I've been a little bit of a mantra that I've had uh, in, in the past few months, and that is simply this. It, it's a question that I'll put to you. Are you willing to do what God has called you to do, or are you going to settle for what you are being allowed to do? I want you to know that right now in America, in the church, all around you, there are people who will allow you to do less than what God has called you to do. And I'm going to tell you that you're selling yourself short and you are selling a lot of other people short when you settle for what you are allowed to do. I'm very thankful for the grace of God. I'm very thankful that he is patient with me. And when I fall uh, and and I, I fall short and I choose less than his best, that he is always there to forgive me, to restore me, to heal me, to get me right back on track. I have never felt like I had to prove myself to him again and again. He's always ready to pick up wherever I left off. But I just want you to know, if you're not confident in your mind, if you're not confident in your heart that you know you're doing what God has called you to do, you're missing out. You're missing out. It could be you'll make heaven. I don't know. I ain't, I'm nobody's judge. I can't do that. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if we could? We just say, "Come on, God, give Kenny a chance." You know, <laughs> just he's he's working at it. Just I'm nobody's judge. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. I can't tell you if you're if you're all in or not. But God can. Just a, not that long ago, this was just an idea in my head. This is my fourth visit to Ukraine now. Each and every one has been uh, special and memorable in different ways. We're getting to know the culture and the history. We've made many, many friends. I have a home church in Ukraine. I have people uh, that I love there, uh, just like that I love here. When I got off the plane, this uh, it was about a year ago now. We're, this was a uh, week. We, kind of a new pattern uh, that we've been on. So about a year ago when I, when I got off the plane, it was wonderful. I was met by Ukrainian members of Honor Bound Motorcycle Ministry. And what I love, when they, when they show up, there's usually somebody who, who kind of keeps an eye out for us in the airport, and we make our way through customs, and we finally get to where we're dragging all of our luggage, and we're just trying to get there, and we start looking around for a familiar face. And I always, I study my language so hard during the winter and I think man when I get off the plane this time I'm just gonna I'm gonna be able to just talk uh, speak to the Ukrainians we're gonna understand it's gonna be great I get off I get off the plane I go and I'm, I'm waiting for some somebody to say something to me and they do and I'm like yeah I got nothing I got nothing I got nothing I cannot understand so we finally get through customs, and, and uh, uh, we're dragging our luggage. We're making sure that, that Colton's with us. And I left my brand-new cell phone on the plane. Didn't know that at the moment. But, uh, you know, it's all this little fun stuff. And I just start looking for a familiar face. And oftentimes there's many. And they're just standing there, and they're so excited, and we hug, and they start helping. And then I went outside, and there they were standing with the honor-bound banner. So many members of the church that uh, we come. It's a, a kind of a, it's kind of a, almost like a little event. They they load up the church van, and as many people as as 
Well, they leave room for us, but as many people as want to come, uh, they come. So it's just wonderful uh, to get there and, and hear about the, what the group was already doing uh, before I got there. When, when I first started going, it was kind of like they would wait for me before they made a single move. But now uh, they're off on their own. They're doing their own thing. I heard about evangelistic events and rides that they've been on in my absence, and we started to plan on what is the next strategic steps that we will take. I bought a car and a motorcycle this time, and we started trying to live like Ukrainians again. There were moments that it was just pure joy. I got to kind of do some, some little bucket list types of things. I'd always, always had in my mind how much fun it would be to speak to a large outdoor crowd in a, in a foreign country. And I got to do that on Father's Day. It was a new, a new holiday for Ukraine, but they've adopted Father's Day, the same date as our Father's Day. And so they, uh, a big church uh, in the capital city brought me in, and they did three different uh, outreaches on Father's Day, and they wanted us to bring our bikes in and ride around and make all kinds of racket, and so that's what we did. We're, they, they would just parade us around these neighborhoods endlessly. I got so tired of just riding around in circles, and yes, here we are, here we are, and we would we would stop, we'd finally get there, and they would say, oh, let's thank the bikers. It's all in Ukrainian, but I'm, I think that's what they said, something like that. And, they, and so then they'd want us all to rev our bikes, so all the other guys, they'd start their bikes up. I didn't even start my bike. I just let it sit there, and I would grab the throttle, and I'd just go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you guys are crazy. These are air-cooled motors. You're just toasting them right now. Knock it off. But it was great. And I got to uh, got to preach in front of in front of these crowds and uh, at, at the at the they were kind of in uh, various degrees of income level. The first one it was a very very wealthy people. Then the next one is kind of a more middle range uh, uh, group. And then by the time uh, when we were at the real wealthy one, they almost didn't let me up on stage because they were I, well I don't know why, but they did. And I went there and it it kind of I don't know. It was, it was a weird thing. I thought, man, I can't even, I can't even preach for five minutes. I, I need to get on the airplane and go home. I thought, this is just so bad. But then we got to the next one, and this was kind of the middle, uh, middle of the road one, and there were about eight different dignitaries and all that addressing the crowd. And uh, in Ukraine, if you're last, you're the speaker. Okay, that's the, so I guess that's kind of like how rock concerts and all that works, right? You have all the openers, and then they, they wait. So uh, anyway, all of, these, all of these bishops and different people from the community were up speaking and addressing the crowd. And then they, then they call me up there, and I got my little five minutes. I, I was almost last. I don't remember if I was exactly last. But I got up there, and there was a crowd of hundreds of people. They're all sitting there, and all that I talked to them about was the fact that I didn't, I didn't know how to be a father or a husband or anything uh, uh, when, when, I, when any of those things I tried. There's no, there's no rule book, but God has helped me to be what I need to be each and every time and each and every circumstance, and I told them that was their only hope. I preached the gospel as hard and as fast as I could in just a few minutes, and when it was done, I got a standing ovation from this huge crowd, and it was incredible. Then we got to the, the, third, the third outreach, and I was the only one there. There were no dignitaries that bothered to show up. It was kind of the, I don't know, the, not the lower, 
Well, maybe. Oh, we got there, and they were playing rock music, and we were, we were rowing around. I was racking my pipes and all that stuff. I said, the, these are my people. These are, this is the ones. And I got to, got to preach again. It was incredible. It was just a, it was a highlight. We kind of started like that. But it wasn't all highlights. There were so many times that we questioned. We said, what in the world are we even doing here? I had my motorcycle, uh, my Harley Davidson, and it was a incredible. I, every, everywhere that I went, when you just, you just kind of showed up, and as soon as you put the kickstand down, there was somebody who was coming over to talk to you, somebody who had some questions about the motorcycle. I always knew what the questions were. The first one is, how much did it cost? And the second one is, how big is the motor? I'm, I understood the first one, but I don't know what the fascination is with how big is the motor. But over and over, someone would come over, and they would ask me those two questions. But they would ask me in Ukrainian, or they would ask me in Russian. I couldn't really tell. And we would sit there, and I would be telling them, I would be saying, Yane Rozmiu, I don't understand. Miu Kransky is malenki, small. I can't speak very much Ukrainian. Vibachte, I'm sorry. Yane Rozmiu. And finally, I'd realize, oh, they're asking me how much it costs again and how big is the motor again. Why can't I get this in my brain? And there was a day that I was, I said, this is stupid. You see, this is what I like doing, if you can't tell. I like to preach. I've got fire in my bones. I want to tell people how much Jesus Christ loves them. And I can't even figure out that this guy's asking me the same question again. How much did this cost, and how big is the motor? I thought, God, what, is, what, what am I doing? What am I doing? I can't even answer these two questions. This is stupid. And then I remembered how many times in a setting like this that I've said it's not, your words are not always what is important. You've heard that before, haven't you? Sharing Christ is something we do all the time, and we use words when absolutely necessary, that our lives should be telling a story. So I decided to do something else. I decided to just be a dumb Christian who doesn't know the language but knows this, that Jesus Christ loves these people that I don't know how to tell them, but I can show them that I'm a kind and compassionate person. I was able to help restart a ministry that's kicking off now. It's called the Daniel School. And that's where they're starting to take young, uh, young Ukrainian uh, uh, kind of middle school, early high school kids that show some promise. And they're sending them to what's, what's called Daniel School where they start giving them some training and, and telling them that God can use them and hopefully raising up uh, the next generation of leaders. It seems like the days passed very quickly and we were packing our bags and heading back to America, heading back to Nebraska with a mixture of emotions. I have no idea what's really been accomplished, but I knew this, that God was faithful. I have even more impossible goals, and I feel like we're just getting started on this adventure in Ukraine. Just before we left, there was a newsletter that I published for Honorbound, and I had our president of Honorbound in Ukraine. I wanted him to write a little story, and I just want to read this to you. I loved what he had to say. 
He said, since 2009, when I learned about HBMM motorcycle service, that's his words, I've been waiting for it to become possible in Ukraine. When that moment came, I was one of the founders of a different motorcycle club in Ukraine. When I, when I was asked if I would help with the organization of Honorbound in Ukraine, I had no doubts and I agreed. After all, I had waited, I had waited this, for this for so long. It was a miracle for me when I learned that some American wants to come to start ministry in Ukraine. I, believe, I love this. I believe God is with us. And we will bear much fruit for the Lord as long as we live and the Lord permits. I know one thing for sure. I'm grateful to the Lord for the opportunity to be useful in this ministry. I feel like I'm a part of something big. I know, I know I need to be patient because I want to go far, and it takes time. Someone said, if you want to go fast, you have to go alone. But if you are far away, you have to have a team. This is not easy, but we have big ambitions. Alexander Lapchenko. We were so excited because we made some key connections in Ukraine, stuff we'd been trying to do for all these years. And, and we came back, we, we had a plan. It looked like we were going to get full appointment to Ukraine. In a few days, after, after we got all the paperwork done and everything, I mean, it was, we were just racing against the clock. And then a few days before we went out for our candidate orientation, war broke out in Ukraine. Um, this was very disappointing. I, I, I want you to know the early days of the war were, uh, were just a nightmare to me. I told you that uh, these, are, these are my friends, this is my family. I want you to imagine that maybe you send, you send your, your, your child off to college or something, and then you hear that there's a terrorist attack on that, on that university campus, and there's no way for your child to get out of there. That's what it felt like to me when the, when the bombs were dropping in Ukraine. And I just prayed, and I just begged God. I said, please, 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 God, protect them. Please, please, God. And we started learning that things were going to, going to change. Went to candidate orientation. My, my appointment to Ukraine is being deferred. And I learned about a country, another country that I had never heard of, Moldova. <laughs> How many of you, I mean, maybe you've heard me reference this, but any, did anybody know about Moldova before any of this started? Anyone? I didn't. Oh, a couple in the back, yeah. I didn't know if they were talking about a salad dressing or a country or some kind of bread or what. I just, I, I didn't know, but I knew that this is where God was sending us. And so now we're going, this is what I want you to know. 
People ask us as soon as a war broke out, well, now what are you going to do? Now where are you going? Listen to me. I am going to Ukraine because God called me to Ukraine, and we are not finished. There have been there's so many things that, that remain undone, and when the bombs started dropping, there wasn't, a, there wasn't even a second of doubt in my mind that this is where I was supposed to go. Instead, what started ringing through my mind is it even more so am I supposed to go to Ukraine. God called me there for such a time as this. Whenever this non, whenever this horrifying, terrible uh, situation ends, there's going to be ministry opportunities for the next few decades that are going to be unparalleled in Ukraine. When I would talk to Ukrainian Christians about their faith and about, about their journey and what it used to be like when they had to hide in fear uh, to be a Christian or they suffered terrible persecution. This is the thing that they used to tell me once once they finished telling about how God saw them through those terrible times and even though they uh, they could have lost their lives and they lost their uh, their their uh, position and their status and all of that stuff. This is what they would say, "We now fear for our children." They said, "Why do you fear for your children?" They said, "Because now it's too easy." It's not easy anymore. My guys in Ukraine, they never, they, what I loved, because I, I, was, I was always having them check in, and I, would just, I just wanted to know, are you alive? That's all. Are you alive? And I never one time did I get a message, yes, we're alive, and we're wondering where is God? Yes, we're alive, and we're asking God, why are you allowing this? They said, yes, we, we, are, we are alive, and we're barely hanging on to our faith. Instead, over and over, over and over, always the same thing was said. Yes, God is good. We see his power. We see his protection. We thank him for what he is allowing us to do in the midst of bombs dropping out of the sky and in the midst of them hiding in basements and and hoping that someday they would be able to enjoy clean water again. They said, God is faithful. They never let up at all. Uh, from day one, they started uh, my president of honor-bound uh, motorcycle ministry, Alexander Lepchenko. He organized the youth group in the church into delivering aid to people who had been bombed or people who could not get out of their homes or couldn't or were out of food. They were delivering food uh, from day one. The children of the church, you, some of you have little, little ribbons that I passed out. You've had opportunity, okay? If you didn't get one, it's your fault. But there were these little ribbons that they pass out that were to remind you to pray for Ukraine. Those same children that stayed up late at night before I got on the plane and braided those ribbons, they were in the church basement braiding camouflage nets for the troops. They, came, they, all, they all stood up, and they knew that God was with them. I'm off track here. Well, we're going to Moldova, all right? It's a door that God has opened. It's not what I planned. Moldova is a little tiny country in the southwestern, on the southwestern border of Ukraine, 
Uh, I do ask you to pray for us because what that means is we're going to about as close to the war as we could possibly get without actually being in Ukraine. Uh, we were going to be joining a church plant team. It was going to be in the port city of Odessa, which is in the news quite a bit now because that's where the war is. They're trying to take that entire coastal area. Well, Moldova is just a short drive uh, out of Odessa. It's a country of two and a half million people. Okay, little tiny place, two and a half million people. It's the poorest country in Europe. And so far, they've had about half a million Ukrainian refugees come in and through there, with somewhere around 150,000 of those staying uh, long term. And, and they don't know where, where, where they'll, how long they'll be there or what they will do. What I, what I was so excited about uh, when, I, when I learned about Moldova, because Europe is Europe is a really weird place. There's so many countries all packed together, and it is so easy for people to hate each other. Hatred comes so natural, and, and sometimes all it takes is just, just a little border, just maybe a little bit of a, a language difference, and suddenly you can't stand these people because they're not like you. When I found out about Moldova, you want to know how many Ukrainians they have turned away at the border because they are such a small and poor country and do not have the resources? You know how many they've turned away? None. None. Not a one. And they could have because they're so small. They could have made this case. They could have said, listen, we, don't eat, we barely have the resources for ourselves. They're the poorest country in Europe, yet they turned away none. They could have said, it's somebody else's job, but they did not. Many of the people who are housed as refugees in Moldova, you want to know who, who is housing them? Moldovans. They opened their homes. There was, there was one interview that, that I, w I was watching, and, and there was a family that had taken on another family. Not another family that they were renting a room to. They just opened their home and said, come. And the person who was interviewing, they said, why did you do this? And they said, because it's the right thing. How could we do anything else. And so we're going to Moldova. We're going to be working with refugees and with, with existing churches, and I'm really excited about that. I don't know what it will look like, but we're going, and I ask you to pray with us. What are we doing? What, do we, what time do I got to quit here? What are we? It's almost time, isn't it? This is the normal. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to shift gears. All right. One of my visits uh, to Ukraine, I had a, a, a privilege of going into the Chernobyl nuclear uh, power plant area. There's an exclusion zone. If you, if, if you, you remember, say, if you're real young, you don't understand Chernobyl. A lot of us, you hear that, you know exactly what it was. It's the worst nuclear disaster that's ever taken place on Earth. And so uh, I got to go there, and uh, it, was a, it was a very interesting, kind of a surreal uh, experience because everything, is, everything was just abandoned in a matter of days. They cleared out this entire area. They said there's no way that there could ever be life there for 
they said like a thousand years or something like that. And uh, so you got to, (laughs) and so of course, I wanted to go take a tour. Why not, right? And so you spend this, we spend day in there, but there's one city that you go to and you spend quite a lot of time there. It's it's a city of Prepia, and this was uh, supposed to be what, how, how the Soviet Union showed the world how great communism was and also how nobody needs God, okay? So I have a, a short video. I want to just show that real quick, and then I, I will probably, well, I ain't going to make any promises, but just go ahead with the video. Is it ready? Of, uh, of what what we experienced as, as we went there because uh, b- before we got into the city we were there was, it was quite a journey in there and we got to go we got to drive across the uh, what they called the red zone where when the nuclear reactor blew up there was a prevailing wind that came and it blew this cloud over the forest and it literally just cooked the trees from the inside out, and it turned them into a bright red. So they called it the the red zone. And as we were going, you, you had a, a we had a Geiger counter that you got to uh, carry around to you know count Geigers, whatever those are. And uh, we're we're going along, and and uh, the tour guide says, okay, if you have your Geiger counter, he said, watch them right now. And we drove, and when we drove across that that short. That short patch, it went from, I don't know, this many Geigers to all of a sudden, 
you know, this huge jump. We're still to this day, just where that wind blew on that day, it's still one of the hottest zones, radioactive zones in the world. They talked about the difference between life and death in Chernobyl, when it, right after it happened, there could be one man, two men standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and this guy die of radiation poisoning, and this guy lived to be an old man. You know what the difference was? This guy may have bent over like that, and there was something that cooked him then. It was bizarre. I could not, I couldn't get my head around what kind of danger was all around me because you can't see radiation. You can't, you can't smell it. You can't even tell that it's there. And after the reactor blew up, they just sent firefighters in there who just fought fires like they always fought fires. It was bizarre. We went to farms that were that were just abandoned. They they were abandoned. There were there were so many sheds I wanted to dig through because they were just they were just full of, yeah. I wanted so bad. I just wanted to grab a little, but I would probably be in prison right now if I did that. We're just looking. It's just abandoned. But then we got to Prepiat, and it was so weird. There were so many dolls laying just just everywhere. It was it messed with your brain because they've been laying there for thirty years, and and Russia didn't make good looking dolls when they were brand new and had some little girl that cared about them and combed their hair. And when they just lay around in that radiation, they looked terrible. It was horrible. The people in the city of Prepyat. This is what the Russians told them: pack a bag. You got to get out now. And you'll get to come home. Don't worry. You'll get to come home. And they knew they would never let them come home. As soon as they were gone, they took everything out of the apartments and piled it up in the middle of the city and buried it all. It could never be touched again. And we were walking around Prepiat, and our tour guide was just ta- talking to us and showing us pictures like, like what you saw up there. We would go to these buildings that were just, they're just decaying. They're just falling apart. They're going, uh, they're, they're going away. And she would show how beautiful they were and how proud Russia was, how proud the Soviet Union was of this incredible place. There was this one where we were walking through, and it was a huge sports coliseum. And I could, uh, it, was, it was almost as if I could hear the crowds cheering because it was like a, a great big arena and here it was just sitting there empty dead if you saw that ferris wheel that was in there that's kind of a a, a well-known thing in uh Prepiet. that amusement park was set to open the weekend after the disaster happened so no child ever got to take a, a spin on that Ferris wheel. It just all sits there. It's all dead. It's all gone. We came upon this, uh, this one cultural center, and the tour guide spent just a little bit of time talking about it. And she says, look at this, at this uh, artwork on the outside. It was a, a mosaic made out of tile, and it was 3D, and... I wasn't all that impressed with it. I mean, I know the artist put a lot of time in it. But she said this, she goes, because of this, that artist was banished, never allowed to create art again. He was shamed 
and and ne his name was never spoken of with respect in the Soviet Union ever again. You want to know what his crime was? They said that that artwork resembled organ pipes, and those are found in a church. And this was the mission of the Soviet Union, to prove that man does not need God. There's all kinds of statues that symbolize how powerful and how great they were because they had harnessed nuclear power, nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. And they were better than God. And in a moment, it was all over. In a matter of a few seconds, no one could ever be allowed to live in that great city again. They tried and tried to wash it and sweep it and clean it, and they finally had to just leave it abandoned. It was an interesting thing. There was a group of people who refused to leave. They would not abandon their homes. They would not abandon their farms. They forced them with every kind of threat you can imagine. They said, we are staying. This is our home. Everybody else left. The average age of the people who were forced out, they lived to be in their 60s. Not a great old age, okay? They lived to be in their 60s, and most of them died of heart failure, stress, okay? The ones that stayed and refused to leave, you want to know how long, what their average age was? They lived to be in their 90s. See, there were a couple of things that I learned when I was there uh, in, in Chernobyl, walking around in Prepyat. Number, number one, stress is more toxic than the worst kind of radiation that the world has ever known. Think about that for just a second. Think about that when you realize how many things you let get going and tying you up and, and you, that let you get so angry you can't even think straight. Stress is a killer. The people that left, they, they, they lost their homes and it, they, died, they died at a young age. That was the first thing. The second thing is that Babylon always falls. Felt like when I was walking around in Prepyat that I was walking around in a modern day Babylon. Someone who says, This man is so great, he does not need God. King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest rulers that the world had ever known. He, in fact, he should be credited as one of the, world, uh, the world's greatest leaders ever. He built an incredible empire, and God used him to bring Israel back to faithfulness. They were, they were living in rebellion. They got to the point where they, they went past the line, and God said, you are now going into a 70-year captivity into Babylon. He said, if you will just go in peacefully, you will have a good life. If you fight, you will be killed. Very interesting, because you would think that if God was using King Nebuchadnezzar to bring Israel back to faithfulness, that King Nebuchadnezzar must be one of the greatest, most godly men that ever lived. Wouldn't you think that? wasn't true at all. This is the guy that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. This is a guy who threw Daniel into the lion's den. This is a man who believed that he was God. And God was using him to bring Israel back. Well, God would, God would speak to uh, kings in dreams, and Daniel 
Daniel got to know, uh, got to be known as a man who could interpret dreams, and he went, uh, he, he had some troubling dreams, and, and Daniel basically told King Nebuchadnezzar, he said, listen, this is a warning. You either repent or you are doomed. Repent or it's, it's all over. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen to him, and the Bible records that he lived for the next few years as a man that was completely out of his mind. He lived like a wild beast. His hair grew long. His nails grew long. He ate grass in the fields. He was completely out of his mind. But chapter Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, listen to what it says. At the end of that time, after and when he came to his senses, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I prayed the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His eternal, his dominion is, is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All peoples of the earth are regarded to him as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor returned to me uh, for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Why? Because now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you want to know what? You want to know the change that happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life? He was forced to do what he was called to do instead of what he was allowed to do. He was a he was allowed to rule and to reign as a tyrant and an amazing king. He was, he was allowed to uh, completely dictate what happened in people's lives. And almost, I mean, many, many people just glorified him for that. But then he came his day when he said, now I am going to do what God has called me to do. And it says he became even greater. And this should be the point where we, where we go, and then his kingdom lasted forever. We should be saying something like this. And even now today, the nation, the empire, the Babylonian empire that started with Nebuchadnezzar way, way back then has become one of the best powers, the greatest of forces of good that the world has ever seen. But no, he had a son. A son. You would think that a son would see what his father had done and say, well, whatever dad did in the beginning, I'm going to not do that. And I'm going to be like the dad that, that happened after he roamed the, the fields and, and uh, ate the grass and all of that. But he did not. He didn't. He was having a great festival, a great party, got really excited, got really drunk, Everyone was having a great time. He decided to show off, show how great the Babylonian Empire was. He said, bring those articles of the temple, those people who worship the one true God. Let's bring those out. I want to show them to you. They were very beautiful. If you've, if you've read about what, how the temple was built and, and these incredible treasures that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took out and put into their, uh, put into their treasury. These were incredible, uh, incredibly beautiful things. He said, Let, bring them out. I want to show off. 
when that happened, said that a hand came and it wrote a message on the wall. Got his attention. Got his attention. So he called Daniel, just like his father had done. He said, what is this? What is this? And he said, he, Daniel says to him, he said, you should have learned. You should have learned from your father. You should have took something away from that. You should have paid attention, but you didn't. He said later that night he died. You want to know what we know, what we, what we really know about the Babylonian Empire? Almost nothing. For, for many, 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 many years, there were people who tried to disprove Scripture because they said, this guy Nebuchadnezzar that's in the Bible so much, he, there's no record of him whatsoever. This Babylonian empire, there's no record of it whatsoever. The Bible is false. Well, then they found all kinds of archaeological uh, evidence that it was true. Everything, all of it, every bit of it. But he was wiped off the face of the earth. Babylon always falls. This is what I fear for America right now. I really do. I do. Because I think we're a Babylon. I do. Well, maybe we're not Babylon. Maybe we're Israel. <laughs> I don't know. But we once used to be something, and we're not anymore. I don't know how many of you are, are well, I, I don't need to go there, but I'm frightened for America. I'm frightened that God's going to have to wipe us off the face of the earth so he can raise up somebody who will listen to him again. I'm not talking about you. We're the only hope. You know that right now? That's it. That's it. This is all America has. You see, this is what you do when Babylon falls. Number one, you pray for a better king. You do. Right? I am, I am watching with, oh, I don't know what that's, watching with bated breath. I'm watching with my lungs. <laughs> I'm very anxious about the elections this, in, in the fall. I'm praying, oh, God, please, please. Please get some people that can maybe turn the tide and get some common sense. I'm praying for a better king. But here's what I know. If you get a good king, there's a more evil king that's waiting to come along. It never makes a difference at last, right? When, when I got back and I saw the Russians, were, they just kept building up on the border and kept building up on the border, and they kept saying, don't worry, we're not going to invade, nothing. I used to send a message all the time to my guys. I said, listen, I'm praying for you, and honor, your brother's in honor bound here in America. We're praying for you. We just, we just, we're asking God to protect you and to, to, and to keep you. And he would always send back this message, oh, cool, thanks, tell everybody. We're praying for them, too, and we're praying that God will protect and keep you and have a nice day. Because nobody thought this would happen. No Ukrainian did. None of them. None. You pray for a better king. You hope that God can use godly government officials to make a difference. But what you'd really do is you work while it is day. We have a chance. It's never too late. 
as long as there is anybody who calls on the name of the Lord and believes that, that, that he is God, there's, there is hope for the world. When I started researching Ukraine and deciding if we were going to go there and I didn't know how motorcycle ministry would work and all this stuff, I, I started researching a, a group that's called the Night Wolves. They're a motorcycle club in Ukraine. They've been, uh, they've been used by uh, Putin quite a bit as kind of his henchmen. And I thought, what on earth would these guys do to an American that's coming over to start a motorcycle ministry? There's always all these political things in the motorcycle cycle world. And so I started researching this group and I found a story that uh, about them and, and they were just as bad as you could think and all this. But uh, this, this guy that started this, this non-Christian motorcycle club that has a terrible, re- uh, a terrible reputation, this is what he said about Russia. He said, the one minus with Russia, the one mistake is we came against Russia. God. We came against the Christian religion. We tried to build a nation without God. So you pray for a better king, but you work while it is day. I'm going to Ukraine. I'm going to Moldova first. It's a, it's a detour I didn't expect um, they, these happen all the time. In fact, uh, uh, God, God does this on a, on a, on a regular basis. He kind of gets you going one way, and then, and then there's a, a turn that you didn't see happen. It happened to Paul. If you look at, uh, at where he ended up uh, on, on the island of Malta, and he was shipwrecked, and it was a, a terrible thing, and all that. Uh, people would have said, boy, nothing went right. But that's been, that was probably one of the most productive times of ministry that he ever had. He ended up in a high Roman official's home, and that Roman official ended up being a, a leader in the early church. So we're going to Ukraine, first by Moldova. And I thought, what, why would they need an American in Ukraine? Housing is, or in Moldova, housing is short. There's, there's no shortage of goods. Food is, food is flowing in. And, in fact, there's a lot of organizations that they're incredibly well-staffed. So if there's someone who, who needs something, they can get it. In fact, anybody could pass out food. Anybody could pass out water. And I thought, why on earth would someone from Nebraska go all the way to Moldova to get involved in something that really isn't any of my business or any of my concern, and it's not directly even affecting the people that I know. Now, why, why should I go? Because there's something more dangerous happening in Ukraine and even in Moldova now than bombs being dropped. There's something more dangerous that's happening than bullets uh, flying and people dying. And it's just this. I've seen it over and over again. They'll be interviewing somebody and they'll say something that just rolls off the tongue so natural. They say this, I will never forgive this. You've probably heard it. In fact, I would venture to say that you have probably said that before because it's such a human emotion. Saying, listen, I was wronged, and I will never forgive. Only a Christian 
has the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can let someone know that if you do not forgive, that's a death sentence on yourself. Okay. So I appreciate, I appreciate uh, your support. I appreciate your prayers. We're in good shape, right, I think. Appreciate you listening to me. But please pray for us. Um, we don't go alone. It's us that's getting on the plane. It's us going to have to sit in that seat for nine hours and all that stuff. It's us that has a jet lag and everything. But we don't go. We go because of you. Every one of you that prays for us, every one of you that supports us, you are there with us. So I really appreciate that, and thank you. But I want to challenge you this morning. Are you doing what you're called to do or what you're allowed to do? It's such an important thing. And a lot of people think that, that, that I'm talking about some big, high, lofty thing, like you haven't said yes to be a missionary that will go overseas. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm actually not saying that at all because I have no idea if God has that, uh, that plan for your life at all. I, don't, I know that's what he has planned for my life. I'm asking you, are you doing what you're called to do? Because it's, it's not, it might not be as grandiose as you think. It could be that God is calling you to finally do what he asked you to do a long time ago, to be faithful in an area that you've been resisting him on forever. It's easy for us to get to a point where we will excuse things that are happening in our life and we'll say, listen, God will forgive me and so you just have have to put up with it. Are you doing what God has called you to do? I had, I had, I thought that my car was dying. Teresa's going to be mad at me over this, but I thought my car was dying. You know that I don't drive, I drive vintage automobiles, okay? And the car that I'm in right now, it's that gold Grand Marquis. It's about to click 200,000 miles. When I bought it, the heater core was leaking, and I poured some junk in the radiator that was supposed to fill, uh, you know, stop leaks, and it's worked. I've put about 25,000 miles on it with that. I'm, I'm so thankful, and I keep, I keep telling this car. I have this. I have the. I have this little contract with. I said, listen. I need you to just do the. Give me one more trip, and then I promise you, I will let you die a dignified death. We'll, we'll be fine. I promise it. That almost every time we just got back from Green River, Wyoming, and I was really saying that to it because it was running terrible. Every time, I would, every time I would start the car, it, it was running so rough and coughing and spitting, and I thought, oh, come on, come on. And then the, that little light, check engine light came on. And I thought, I. So I would get out there, and I lifted up the hood, and I checked. I go, it's there. It wouldn't run. It would, it would kind of level out, and then I spent $26, and I fixed it. It's great. I went on Amazon. I got a code reader. You plugged it into that little diagnostic plug, and it told me exactly what was wrong with the motor. 
I didn't know how to fix it. But it had this little option. It said clear codes. And I said, yes, please. Pow. And the check engine light went off. And I was so excited because it was so cheap to fix. The light was off. And nothing had changed. Hear me. Some of you have figured out how to cancel the code. You've heard, you've heard the same message so many times from so many people. And you've even, felt the, you've even felt the tug. And you know, you know, God, I know you're calling me to do this. But you know how to plug, plug the little light in and go and shut it off until it comes on again. It's not going to work. Incredible thing. <laughs> we were fueling up. And I had, I was just kind of leaving the little scanner plugged in. It was just sitting in the seat. When the light would come on too, I could go cancel. We were getting fuel. And Teresa noticed how horrifically expensive the fuel was. And she even thought, what a fool I was because I didn't put in the fuel that she found that was so much cheaper. It's called E85. Some of you are laughing. Have you, have you ever done this? Because it says all over the pump, it says it everywhere, don't put this in your car if it's not designed for that. Here's the thing. It was still running. It was still running. In fact, we might have made the trip. I don't, I don't know when it would make the car blow up. I don't know. But it was still running. But once I figured out what was wrong, and I actually put what was supposed to be in there, it's running like a champ again. And I'm telling it, please, just get me to Indiana. And after we get back to Pennsylvania, then back to Nebraska, and I'll let you die. <laughs> do what God's called you to do. The whole thing. The Bible's full of it. It says it's not the, it's not the big things that usually take us out. It's, usually, it's the little things. It's the little ones that people will often overlook. Okay? God's called you to do something very specific. It's in his word. It's, it's just jam-packed. Let's do what he called us to do. I'm going to shut up now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this wonderful group of people. God, thank you for their support and for their kindness and their gentleness, God, and, and their prayers, God. I thank you for so many people who come up and they tell me, say, I, I've been praying for you. I'm praying for you. What, is, what can I pray for you about? God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate this wonderful church. God, thank you for the opportunity that we've had to come together and, and to, to study your word and to worship you, God, and, and to give our lives to you again, to commit ourselves to you again, 
to say, here am I, use me. Here am I, send me. Here am I, God. I, I, I give you control of my life. Thank you, God, that we have that opportunity here today. But God, don't let us be people who just figure out how to get the how to get the conviction, how to get the check engine light to, to turn off. To help us not to be the people who harden our hearts so much that no matter how much the word is spoken to us, we just keep doing what we've been doing. We keep compromising. We keep asking you to bless what is wrong in our lives. And then we wonder, why don't I ever have the victory? Why am I always in despair? God, help us not to be those people. God, I pray for, I pray for those who are maybe feeling challenged. Feeling challenged. You're, you're calling them to take a big step to change things up. God, help them to say yes. And then watch you bless their lives, God. Father, I pray as we get ready to leave this place that, Lord, you would you would go with us. You'd help us to be the men and women that you've called us to be, that you want us to be. God, to do the tough things that we've got to do in our lives. God, to obey you, to live in your blessing, God, to learn from our mistakes and move forward as you remake us and put us back together again. Father, we just love you. We love you. I want to, before we pile out of here, just keep your eyes closed, everybody. Eyes all, all the way closed, please. Listen, I said stuff that could just stomp all over toes today. But if you realize, say, man, I got to do what God's called me to do and quit just getting by with what I'm allowed to do. Would you just raise your hand where I can see it? I'm not going to embarrass you. Okay? Man. <laughs> I'm not going to embarrass you and ask you to come down here. But I want you to make a covenant with God right now. Right where you're at. Say, God, whatever it is, no matter what the cost, it's not too much. I will do it. You see, it's that commitment that makes it real. Because when you make that commitment, then it opens up your life where God can come in and he can make you into someone that you are not. The Bible says this, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That means whatever you were, whatever it is that you just said, God, I want this out of my life. I want to put this away. That means that God is giving you a fresh start right now, right where you're at. You begin to covenant with him. You begin to talk with him. You begin to tell him, God, whatever it was, wherever I'm at, it's not where I want to be. I want to move away from this. Here's the incredible thing. This is something that was, I was in a service, and this was reiterated to me, and I'm so thankful. I said, God does not just call perfect people. He does not just use perfect people. He only has flawed people to work with. That's what we all are. And it's him that enables us. There were a lot of hands that went up in that personal way. Right now, you covenant with God. You say no more. Now, I am going to tell you, 
that it could be. You need to make yourself accountable to somebody. You need to talk to somebody. You need to get someone else in the process that can help you to stay on track. We don't do this alone. It's actually the whole point of why we're here today. So that you and I can strengthen one another. And you and I can know that even even though maybe the hour looks dark, there's hope and there's always light. So do that. Do that. Thank you so much. God bless you.